Welcome to the Clay Young Show. Welcome to the first official edition of the Clay Young Show podcast. I've been talking about this behind the scenes for a very long time and looking forward to having this weekly discussion with you and with many of the movers and shakers from here around our great state. Welcome to podcast225.com. And our first guest is someone that I have known for 12 years. I met him in 2003 when I was uh, working for Citadel at the time at WIBR 1300. And he was in the legislature then, and we kind of started having conversations then, hit it off, and we've been friends ever since. And, of course, I'm talking about the Honorable Lieutenant Governor for the state of Louisiana, Jay Darden. Hey, Jay. Clay, nice to be with you. So this is a big year. You're running for governor, but I don't want to start right there. I want to go back to the beginning, even before your time at LSU. When you were a kid, let's start in, in the high school area, what were some of the things that you looked at and said, you know, I want to do that. I want to be that when I become an adult. You know, I'd, I've been in leadership roles really my whole life. I was president of student body in my elementary school and uh, and then at Baton Rouge High and High School. And I always uh, sought leadership positions and enjoyed serving. And, and so I think you know, some of my classmates tell me now, oh, you used to talk about how you wanted to be governor and this and that. And I, I don't ever, <laughs> honestly, don't ever remember doing that or saying that. But I, I think I knew from a pretty young age I wanted to be involved in politics. And and the road that, that got me into the political sphere was one of volunteerism. I, I was, I didn't, I served as president of the student body at LSU, but I didn't run for political office mm-hmm. until I was about 34 when I was had been out of school for almost a decade or so. So I spent a lot of time during those years in my 20s and 30s uh, getting married, having a family, and volunteering in, in a lot of activities around the community. And I tell young people today that that is the avenue I think most people should approach before they decide to run for office. Is volunteering. To, is to volunteer for nonprofits, for schools, for churches, for um, health agencies, whatever, to, to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty in a volunteer capacity. And, and that was really the springboard to me getting into politics. What are some of the things that you think about as a kid that were transformational in your life, especially as young men, we all have things that we look at and go, man, that's the day that I changed, started becoming the person I am today. Well, you know, I guess the first thing that comes to mind seems kind of trivial, but it was impactful in my life. I got cut from the basketball team in mm-hmm. ninth grade uh, when junior high was junior high, seventh, right. eighth, and ninth grade. Right. And so, you know, I'd been a starter in the seventh and eighth grade and loved basketball, and we had a very good group of athletes at, at that school, Westdale Junior High. It's a whole other story. Um, but we had a new coach that came in, and I had a bad tryouts, and I got cut, and I deserved to get cut. But it was one of those deals. It was a real wake-up call because I figured, oh, I'm going to make this team, and that was very important to me, and I, I didn't make it. And, and I, that year I bought and read a book called The Drive Within Me, which was Bob Pettit's uh, biography. Yeah. And, and he had been cut from the team at Baton Rouge High as a, right. as a sophomore, as a freshman, I guess. And uh, in any event, it kind of motivated me, and, and, and uh, I, I realized that you're not going to always get what you want in life or what you expect you're going to get, and you got to work hard to get that what you really want. And I worked hard and wound up playing basketball in high school, and, and that was one of those moments where I, I, it was a failure, and I wasn't mm-hmm. used to failure at that point in my life. Did you notice any moments of ugliness in others as a kid, maybe directed at you, maybe directed at others, things that you look back at, or even when you went through, you could just remember thinking, it's not right that people are being treated this way. Uh, Sure. I mean, I I grew up in the the time of desegregation in Baton Rouge, Um, starting high school, or really in junior high, was was the the most tumultuous period of the beginning of desegregation Mm -hmm. in Baton Rouge. And um, it was a scary time for a lot of people uh, because you were in a new school environment. It was difficult, I know, on the black kids coming into Westdale. Right. It was equally difficult for some uh, white students who had been there and who had grown, and I'm not talking about myself, but who had grown up in an environment where everything was separate. Right. And then the, certainly the same thing held true in my Baton Rouge High days. In fact, uh, one of our, our basketball game against Glen Oaks was canceled because of the North Boulevard riots in 1972, right. my right. senior year, which literally happened uh, 10, 15, 20 blocks from Baton Rouge High. I mean, we could hear the, the sirens as that, that event was taking place. And what was that like? It, it was scary. It was, it was very scary because we, um, 
you you knew something was going on. You didn't know exactly what, but I think probably knew at the time that there was going to be a demonstration downtown. And Mm -hmm. I I was on, we had a biracial committee is what it was called at the time in high school, which I remember vividly. And I was on it and um, Kenrick Feeling, uh, uh, a a black guy who was a friend of mine who's Mm -hmm. now gone on to to live and work in Washington, D.C., and several other people. And um, we had, I remember we had a meeting of that committee shortly after the incident. Uh, and, and, it, and so I, I certainly witnessed um, people going through a stressful time in, um, in, as young adults in Baton Rouge. Talk with me a little bit more about that because I've had conversations with you about things that happen in the state, in the community. You kind of have a passion for people. You connect with people. But some of that has to have come from things you saw as a kid. Because otherwise you'd be faking it. Well, I can't say that I witnessed huge levels of, of uh, discrimination or other things as a kid. You know, I'm Jewish, and, and that was somewhat of a um, – it's still, you know, you're the minority in, in this sure. community and in Baton Rouge. I never experienced any kind of discrimination in that regard directly to me. I mean, there were, I know there were some comments made and, um, and – uh, People jokingly call me rabbi, you know, right, it was right. not in an evil, a mean spirited way. Um, but I think as, as you're, you're growing up in the in that time, you're growing up in the 60s and growing up in the early 70s, uh, you were exposed to a, a changing America and a lot of mm-hmm. different thoughts. And, and the, you know, this was a time that drugs were coming on the scene and, right. and uh, kids were, you know, were experimenting with that. And not me, but but seeing people who you knew were were in that uh, environment. And it was it was. A lot. It was very difficult for people during that time. Who were your mentors? Well, my my mom and dad, uh, both of whom I would say were were great mentors. Uh, my friends, in a lot of respect, were mentors. I, I have I have lifelong friends that mm-hmm. I've, I've had since literally since kindergarten. Who Man, that's still, rare. We're still very very close, and that that is rare. Yeah. And, and but but I had friends who I, I do consider mentors in 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 many ways. Um, and coaches who uh, along the way, and and then I had a in my professional life, I, I had great mentors and my law partners. I, I practiced law with a very small firm sure. my entire career, and and they had never had a young associate until I came along, uh, and they were very much mentors. And I I clerked for Judge Frank Palazzolo, mm-hmm. the late Judge Palazzolo, who I absolutely considered a mentor, uh, um, a, a guy who I think was uh, was born to be a judge and and took his responsibilities. Uh, very, very seriously, and I was his last clerk as a U.S. magistrate and his yeah. first clerk as a district judge and, um, you know, learned an awful lot by watching the way he conducted himself and, and the way he dealt with stress and the way he dealt with criticism. Let's talk about your time at LSU. What do you remember most about being there? I mean, you're tiger for life, but I mean, what do you I, remember I, most? Well, I remember lots about that experience. I mean, it was a, a great time in my life, and I, I got involved in a lot of activities there. In fact, a really a life-changing event for me yeah. at LSU, getting the opportunity to be involved with the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Yeah. I was a chairman. You of saw the, them chisel a lot of money out of me last year. Yeah, yeah, like I did. They're good at it. Yeah, and I, they are. And I, and I did it for a long time with yeah. them. Uh, I, I I chaired the event that we held during that time of a seven-day nonstop flag football game on the parade ground, which, wow. was, which was really a great, great event. And, and I was asked to be the chairman of that event when a, a single fraternity gave it up. It was getting too big just for one fraternity, so the right. whole inter-fraternity council became the sponsors, and I was the first chair. And, um, you know, we were our my goal was to raise more money than anybody had raised in America at that time, and we, we pretty much did it. And so I got involved with the national organization as yeah. a result of that, and I got to be the national youth chairman for the organization. And, and um, I was the first non-celebrity, I guess, to have that job. Uh, uh, Jerry Mathers, who was Beaver, yeah, the Beaver, it to Beaver yeah. was the one of the first ones. Jerry Lewis's sons had been national youth chairman. Patty Duke. And well, nobody youth. remembers who the hell Jerry Mathers is anymore. No, That's a shame, but is. nobody well, does. I, my vintage certainly <laughs> yeah, does. Right. But anyway, I, I got a chance to be involved with that organization and literally traveled around the country during my collegiate days raising money, speaking to, to youth groups to get them motivated right. to raise money. So that was a, an absolutely life-changing experience. It's been with me my whole adult life. Why'd you choose law? I think I always said I was a journalism student, as you right. know, and I got a degree in advertising journalism. I love to write, mm-hmm. and and I loved that field. But I felt like um, if I didn't go to law school right then, directly out of my undergraduate degree, I probably never would. And I always right. had in the back of my mind that 
that I would be a lawyer and that that would be an, an entry into politics. And uh, my best friend, um, Robert Damp, who was one of the people I've talked about that I've been close to right. since kindergarten, right. was had graduated from SMU and was coming back to law school. And, and des- I decided really the, the spring of my graduation year that I would take the LSAT and I'd go to law school, and, and I did. It was, a, it was a good decision. I'm glad I did. So you're out of law school, you've spent this time in Baton Rouge, had experience being over these committees, over these groups. At what point did you start to think, I might want to run for office? When several people approached me about running for office. Now, when was this? This was in, uh, this was probably in 1986 or thereabouts, in the, in the mid-80s, um, and a fellow who's no longer with us named Robbie Rosenthal, who was a good friend older than I, I was and uh, very in, ingrained in business, had a very successful business and mm-hmm. was kind of a guy who, um, who inc- really encouraged me, said, you need, to, you need to think about running for office and I know you're going to do it and when you do, I want to help you. And, and I decided to in, um, in 1987 when I ran for the state Senate and, and got beat mm-hmm. um, and Robbie was my campaign manager and that was really the that race and it was kind of a a quick decision. Uh, Tommy Hudson was the senator from South Baton Rouge who made a very unexpected announcement that he was not going to seek re-election. Right. Larry Bankston, who was the councilman at the time, yep. had been groomed to, f- to fill the seat. And he his signs were up as soon as Tommy announced he wasn't running. Mm-hmm. And I'd been on vacation with my family. The kids were, boys were real small at the time, and drove back into town and saw these signs up for Larry Bankston running for senator. And I said, there's, there's not an opening. And then I realized what had happened. Literally, I was out of town, and I said, you know, that nobody should just walk into this office like right. this as if it's groomed for them and they have an entitlement to it. And, and I decided to run as a, as a Republican who never run for office before in a, a tough district. It was, a, it was um, I, at the time, the district was uh, 33%, I think, uh, African-American, which was clearly Democratic votes. Right. And, uh, not a whole lot of registered Republicans at the time, but anyway, I ran and it was a it was a great experience. I got beat by a couple of hundred votes. Uh, best thing that ever happened to me to lose that race. Why? I was going to ask you that. What? Because I th- I found that some of the more accomplished people, people who are someone of heft, they will talk more about losses than yeah. victories because of the lessons you learn. Well, if anybody doesn't learn lessons from losses, then they're they're missing the boat and. Not going to pretty much not going to be a winner anytime soon. Yeah, well, that's right. And, and uh, it was not a race I was expected to win. But when I when I got into the runoff, it was it was winnable. But right. It was going to be tough. And losing by such a small margin was obviously disappointing. What could we have done differently? But the reality was there's not a whole lot we could I could have done differently. And, and, and I learned a lot from it. And and it was a crossroads. Had I won it was when Buddy Romer got elected governor. I probably would have been involved in the Romer Revolution. I don't right. know where that would have left me after it, the revolution ended. Uh, but it enabled me to, to run for the city council the next year for Larry's right. seat, which That's I right. didn't really think I would do. But, again, people said, you really need to do this. It's a time to, you know, you can win this seat. And, and it was a seat I could win. I'd run in virtually the had run in the entire council district right. for Senate and done very well in those boxes. So. Got elected to the council at a in a, a time a great time for Baton Rouge. Tom Ed McHugh got elected mayor. Right, right. Uh, nine of the twelve council members were new. Four of the previous council members were either in jail or under indictment. It was a, a time for a, a refreshing time for Baton Rouge to have new blood in mm-hmm. public office. And we had a we had a great council. Um, Mary Fry Eaton. Yeah. Uh, Buddy Wilson, Doug Welburn, Sharon Broom. Yep. People have gone on to other offices. Yep. Duke Welch. Um, I'm leaving several out, and I don't mean to, but it was. When you think about that: a senator, a clerk of court, a judge, lieutenant governor. That's a pretty good class of of you know council members. A, it there was a great class of people. Uh, we we got along. We had differences, obviously, uh, but but it was a a great time for Baton Rouge. And Tom Ed McHugh came along right at the right time, uh, and and our council did some very good things. And I got to I got my feet wet in, in elected office for those three three and a half years or so mm-hmm. as a council member, and and then decided to run for senate the the uh, next time an election was held. Now that is, you've not lost an election since then. I hadn't lost an election since since eighty since eighty seven. So right. you've 
you've you were in the Senate two terms no, or no, four terms. Well, four, I was 16, uh, 15. Did years. you finish that last term there? No, no that's I, right. I have left with um, with a year left to go so, to run for secretary of state. Correct. So I served 15 years instead of the four terms at uh, four years each. Right. Um, and then served for four years as secretary of state now and my fifth year as lieutenant governor. I'll tell you one of the one of the things that most that I liked most about you when I when I met you. I don't like BS, you know, and a lot of times when I'm doing radio shows for people, I have to be very care- careful how much I let people know I'm annoyed with them when I'm sitting with them. And politicians and preachers piss me off like nobody else. And I'm not indicting every politician or and certainly not every minister. But I think in a position of service, you don't get any more service oriented than an elected official or a minister of some faith. But you had a chip on your shoulder about the way you wanted to do things. And you kind of walked around and said, he's kind of a tough guy. You know, he's got his direction. He kind of knows where he wants to go. And then when we would when we would talk, you were reasonable. And there wasn't BS behind it. It wasn't grandstanding for the sake of a headline. You actually had a reason why you took those positions. Now, I've known you for a while. You've taken on some fire for standing behind certain principles, right? Yep. So let's start Let's start with that at the beginning. Your brand new green breath smells like baby milk in politics. And I know you had to have people come to you saying, hey, kid, this is how you need to do this to stick around. What was your reaction to that? Absolutely, that happens. In fact, uh, that that's what I what I've told people when when you come to the Senate. Uh, for example, here I'm I'm in my 30s and I'm coming to the Senate for the first time, and all of a sudden you're Senator Darden. Yeah. Everybody's calling you Senator this, Senator that. What can I do for you? Blah blah blah. And uh, it's easy to to uh, all of a sudden think you're, you're something more than you really are. Right. And one of the my first I guess one of the first lessons, and I've talked to people about this as they come into politics, um, don't go along to get along. It's very easy mm-hmm. to go along. Uh, to get along, and then you become part of the crowd. And I was not part of the crowd right. in my freshman year as a senator. Nor were, nor was Tom Green, Max Jordan, several other people who right. who kind of came in and were not going to just fall lockstep with uh, what was going on with the leadership of the Senate, which is a a very clubby uh, group. The, Still the senator is is, is uh, it's thirty nine people. Yeah. You get to know everybody very well, and yeah. you can be friendly with people and disagree politically. And that that's what happened. Uh, but you, you have to take great care not to just do what the leadership suggested you do just so you can get along. And and I didn't do that. I was obviously this was Governor Edwards' his last term, and I was kind of throwing hand grenades over the wall that, that whole first <laughs> term. Um, but, uh, you know, I will say this about Governor Edwards. I remember when I got elected, I went and had a meeting with him uh, and, and sat down with him at Pleasant Hall and said, yeah. Governor, I just want to – you know, want to introduce myself to you. We, we know who each other are, but right. uh, I'm looking forward to being in the Senate. And, and, um, and I said, I'm probably not going to be part of your team. And he said, he stopped me. I remember he said, well, let me tell you, I know your district better than you do. And you're not going to be able to be with me very often. Uh, but when you can, I would ask you to do so. And he said, if you ever want to use a governor's mansion for any kind of a function, you just call and let us know, which I never did, actually. Right. But it was but it was a genuine gesture. You and might have ended up on the Fed's wire. Well, it was a lesson. It was a lesson on how he was so successful in dealing right. with people, even with his enemies, his political enemies. But uh, but anyway, I, I wasn't a part of the team by any stretch. And, and um, that was an that was a very interesting four years. Well, I, but I, and I want to I want to try to not hop around too much. It's inevitable that we're going to do it some because I do want to ask you about former Governor Edwards and that time and his impact on Louisiana, not just policy, but perception. But let's let's stick with this with you. You get into the Senate. You get people come to you. They, they try to tell you how the bread is baked and you need to do it this way to stick around. You rebuff a lot of that. Was there any advice you got early on that you kept and that you found was successful and some advice that you took that you found out after the fact? I probably shouldn't have listened to that person. Well, I, I don't know. You know, one of my I guess I would say one of my political mentors going back to your other earlier question was John Hankel, who was mm-hmm. who was there when I was there and who right. was a, a real character out of New Orleans and kind of took me under his wing and. And uh, I would kind of watch the way he acted and the way he was able to get along with everybody but still be a thorn in their side. And, um, you know, I listened a lot early on that first year and kind of learned the ropes and, and then got a little much more active, I'd say, in the, in right. the subsequent years, certainly in the second year. Um, but, no, there was nobody who said do this and, or, or, or don't do that. It was, there were just uh, 
subtle ways of, of letting you know how you should act or what you should do. And how much condescending did you put up with? A pretty good amount. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the first things I do remember is uh, sitting on a committee and, and a, a senator coming up to me and telling me he had a bill in the committee and he'd like for me to vote to get the bill on the floor. Okay. And I said, you know, no, I, don't, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I'm not for this bill. He said, well, then if you can't vote for it, can you just take a walk. That, well, that's the expression. Just take a walk. Right. And leave the committee room at the right time so that you're not there when the In other occurs. words, you're not counted in the no votes. That's right. you, you, and that's politics, too. And absta- you know, people abstaining or taking a walk, it's the same as not being in the no category because well, right. he was counting numbers is well, what he was and, doing. And you don't abstain on those votes in right. committees. You're called upon, you have right. to vote, but it's easy to walk into the ante room That's or leave right. the committee room and go handle another bill. And and I I didn't know what he was talking about, frankly. This was very early on the And career. that still goes on to this well, day. Of course it does. <laughs> but take a, you could take a walk. And, then, and I said, well, no, I'm not going to do this. I came here to vote and I'm, I'm not going to take a walk. And it was like, Oh, so you're not going to be the team player. You're not right. going to get along. And, and, and that was pretty much an early signal that I wasn't going to get along because I just wasn't willing to do that. All right. We're going to take a quick break and come back with the lieutenant governor, talk more about his time in the Senate. And then we'll ask him about some political figures from Louisiana's past. And yes, we are going to talk about the governor's race that takes place this coming fall. Back in just a second. Clay Young and John Fabry here with Infinity of Baton Rouge and Infinity of Lafayette. We've been talking all week long about the new vehicles. John, let's talk about pre-owned. Well, pre-owned's a great way to go. We, we have a huge inventory. As you know, we sell as many pre-owned cars as we do new. And for good reason. We get great trades all the time. People mm-hmm. that trade in cars with us. They don't need a new car. They just want a new car. And so the cars that they've had, they've been well-maintained. And, of course, we check them out thoroughly and do any reconditioning that's necessary. But no matter what price range you're in, if you're looking for a car, truck, or SUV, we have it. We keep at least 180 in stock all the time and more coming. Wow. So if you find yourself looking for new, pre-owned, certified, we have it. Infinity in Baton Rouge or in Lafayette. That's infinitybr.com or in Lafayette, infinitylaf.com. You can see the full selection on the lot. Get a great deal on not just a new, but a pre-owned Infinity as well. Back with Lieutenant Governor Jay Darden talking about his time in the Louisiana Senate. Now, this was when? what Your first term began when? 92. 1992. So we are, wow, we are in the, in the throes of all of the national conversation about Bill Clinton. This was just after... Uh, President Clinton had, along with H. Ross Perot, taken down George H.W. Bush. Uh, Buddy Romer had had that one term, and Edwin Edwards had come back because he ran again to run against David Duke at the time. So what was that like after after the political season you had just come through? Well, keep in mind, the political season I just came through was the Duke-Edwards runoff. Right. And... and uh, my, I was in a runoff with a fellow council member, Linda Imes, who mm-hmm. was the, the uh, president, of the, the president of the council, uh, Mayor Pro Tem, mm-hmm. um, and a good person. And we were very friendly and usually allies, but we ran against each other. And it was a it was a difficult race. I trailed after the first primary. Linda was up something like 48, 43, or 48, or 49, 41. It was, you know, she had a, a pretty strong lead. Right. Uh, so I had a tough race in the in the runoff, but it was a Duke Edwards runoff. And my television commercial, uh, one of my commercials in that race was a picture of Edwards and a picture of Duke next to one another, occupying full screen. The the pictures parted, and I walked into the middle of the, with the two of them now in the background, and basically said something like, uh, "Working with either one of these guys is going to be no picnic. You need somebody who's independent, right. who's going to be forceful, and and stand up to whoever is governor." Because it was a it was a Hobson's choice. Uh, at that point, for a lot of the people in the district I would represent. Um, so I'm coming off of that election. Right. And Edwards is, is coming off of an election that, that uh, you know, he, he got elected because of conservative Republicans who voted for him, right. who, like me, who couldn't stomach the thought of David Duke being governor of this state. What about that? Just stay there just for a moment. That period for Louisiana, I vividly remember the dialogue, but we learned a lot about our state in terms of how we were not the place that someone like David Duke was saying we were. But we were the place that was vote for the crook. It's important. That's we, right. We were, you know, that that was the slogan that carried the day, and so it was. It was not necessarily a, a ringing uh, tribute to the state. That right. That was the campaign slogan that got the governor elected. Would have been a hell of a lot worse though. Well, had it it gone been, the other way. It, it would have been a disaster, and, and I think 
people recognize that, but it was also at a time where where for for Duke to have even made the runoff, you mm-hmm. you, you were having a lot of people in this state buying into that yeah. conservative quote conservative message. Yep. Uh, it was beyond conservatism, obviously, but a lot of people bought into that message. Uh, but anyway, uh, coming into the Senate, the Senate was totally controlled by by Governor Edwards. Mm-hmm. The, there were, I, if I, if I remember correctly, nine Republicans. I may not have that exactly right, but there was a relatively small number of Republicans. Right. There were some conservative-leaning Democrats, but it was a, a, a legislature and a Senate controlled totally by Governor Edwards. Sammy Nunez was the president. Um, so that was the environment we were we were coming into, and it was the the beginning of uh, the the huge discussion over gambling in Louisiana. Yes. That was the central you mean issue. gaming, don't you? That's right. Gaming, as it, it is now known officially. But How uh, ridiculous but, is that? Um, that was the big issue that, that permeated everything for those four years, but particularly those early years. Right. And I was on the committee. Uh, the, I was the minority member of the committee, along with uh, Randy Ewing. Um, and it seems to me some somebody else, usually the votes would be... Uh, would be four to two or something like that. Right. And, you know, the, the, but it was interesting to be seated on that gambling committee and watch as everything unfolded. So you move along, you're in the Senate, uh, you've gone through this period with Edwin Edwards, Governor Edwards is leaving office. Mike Foster's running for governor. At the time, this was another political hot season. You've got Mike Foster, the Republican, and the two Democrats who were battling it out for the lead were Mary Landrew and Cleo Fields. And I want to I want you to talk about that because they were spending a lot of money in media at the time trying to draw this out. What do you think about that period? Well, I didn't have an opponent for re-election right. that year, so I, I was I was uh, re-elected without opposition, uh, and so in a position to observe the political race rather than mm-hmm. be caught up in the middle of mm-hmm. it. Uh, and Mike Foster sat behind me for my first four years in the Senate. We right. we got to be chummy because right. I mean he, he was literally behind me, provided me some guidance mm-hmm. early on. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know we disagreed on some things during the course of uh, of that first year. I I, I remember really working on him about term limits. Uh, people have looked back on term limits, but I, you know, I handled that bill for David Vitter in sure, the Senate and, sure. and passed it over what everybody, nobody thought it was going to pass. How interesting is that? Yeah. But that's down the road. Well, nobody thought it would pass. I mean, that's right. why the bill came flying out of the House, because they knew it'd get killed in the Senate. Well, right. it didn't get killed in the Senate. And uh, in any event, I, I, Mike and I got to be buddies, and his office was right across the hall from me in the in the Senate basement. Uh, so I, I vividly remember Steve Perry, who was his legislative staffer, walking across the hall and saying, "Mike's going to run for governor." And uh, I thought he was kidding, but um, <laughs> he wasn't. And, and uh, you know, Mike put together a heck of a campaign. And um, on election night, uh, I got a call asking me to come to Lafayette the next morning mm-hmm. because the governor-elect Foster was going to introduce his team. Uh, and it was a couple of his staff people who had worked in the Senate, and Cheney Joseph was going to be the executive counsel, and right. I was introduced as the floor leader, he, right. uh, the guy who was going to handle his legislation. So, uh, you know, that was a big shock to me that, that it happened. But Mike had said during one of the, the um, debates as to who, who he might look to for legislative leadership, he had right. mentioned my name, but just in passing, but... In any event, um, that was a that was a very heady moment when I knew that we were going to now. I wasn't going to be throwing stones anymore. I sure. was going to be taking blows. No question. And, and it was uh, that was truly an exciting time because good things were going to be happening. Well, when's the last time you spoke with him? I haven't spoken to him in, gosh, I don't know the last time I spoke when. To him at some point last year, I haven't yeah. talked to him this year, but at some some point during last year, I visited with him. What do you think of him as a? You know, we we got we have these labels now in politics. There there and there's so many too many to keep up with. But what what would you categorize? Governor, quote unquote, Mike Foster, as talking political ideology. He was a businessman who mm-hmm. got into politics late in life and wanted to make a difference and had life's experience behind him mm-hmm. when he came into that office and had a pretty good idea of what he wanted to do. He had an excellent staff, sure, and he he was not obviously, as we all know, he wasn't a detail guy. He didn't no. get down in the weeds, but he had a great staff, and he put a lot of trust and confidence in his legislative leadership and in his staff. Uh, so we had a great deal of uh, liberty to, to uh, do some things that I think are going to be looked back upon as very progressive moves for Louisiana. Do you think you made, well, I know you did because you hear people talk about it. I don't know how consequential it is because you were his floor leader. Like you said, you were going to take on some fire. 
and his enemies were your enemies. And some of these people are still around, and they're still saying, well, all he was was a rubber stamp for Mike Foster. What's your response to that? Well, that's completely false, and anybody who served with us would recognize that because my, I, don't, I hate to say deal, but my understanding with Governor Foster was that if I wasn't for something, I wasn't going to handle it. Right. For example, one of his big initiatives was initiative and referendum. He wanted yeah. to have like they have in California where the people can put things on the ballot, and I was not for that. And uh, he wasn't real pleased with me when I was, said, I'm, I'm not for it. I'm not going to Why were you against it? I just didn't think it was a good idea policy-wise, and, and I still don't. Um, and and so I, I didn't I didn't handle everything that came down the pike unless I felt like it was something that, that uh, I believed in. And we had that relationship. We had that understanding, and it, and it worked well. When you left to run for lieutenant governor after the untimely death of, of I'm sorry, for secretary of state after the untimely death of Fox McKithen, now when did you make up your mind that you wanted to do that? Actually, no. Who was in after Fox died? There was, well, who Al, was Ader, in, Al Ader. Ader was in there. Ader was his assistant yeah, yeah. And, and filled in for the, the year or so. That's or right. D- filled in during the, the terrible time of Katrina. That's Al, right. Al did a tremendous That's job right. uh, as the first assistant. He was in the position that Tom Shedler was in for me, and right. Tom became Secretary of State right. when I got elected Lieutenant Governor. But right. Al did a tremendous job. Oh, yeah. And there was a lot of thinking that Al would run for Secretary of State, and, and I began thinking about it. It was at the same time that there was talk about the, the Senate race, about sure. Gooder's first re-election. Yeah. Uh, and people were talking to me about running for Senate. And I, I never did anything to advance that because I really knew back then, as I know right now, I, didn't, I just didn't want to go to Washington. I was right. not interested in, in doing that. So um, those, those offices were both under consideration mm-hmm. at the time. And Why did you choose Secretary of State? I, I wanted to stay home. Just stay home. I wanted home. to be in Baton Rouge, and I felt like that would be a job I could I could do. I'd been on the committee and chaired the committee that had oversight mm-hmm. on elections and on ethics issues and uh, and, and thought that would be a, a, a great fit for me and an appropriate thing for me to do. Uh, and so I just I decided to get in, in that race. And I want to talk about the lieutenant governor's race because there was there was a story happening in the Capitol at the same time that the seat was going to be up for grabs when Lieutenant Governor at the time, Mitch Landrieu, was going to be running for mayor of New Orleans at the time the Jindal administration was kicking around the idea of absorbing the Lieutenant Governor's office into the Governor's administration. I want to come back to that, but before going to Secretary of State from the Senate after serving in the Senate for 15 years of a 16-year period, leaving there and then the council before then, do you ever think about getting out of politics? No, uh, I, I enjoyed it. Um, my family has enjoyed it and been extremely supportive. Why do you enjoy everything. it? Uh, I enjoy the aspect of serving the people and mm-hmm. being in a position to try and make a difference. Sure. And, and I, I ran for the first time. One of the things I said in some of my material was the, uh, the term honest, po- honest politician doesn't have to be a contradiction in term. And you can, you can run. <laughs> And you can serve in a way that people will look at you. you sure and say, about that? Well, yeah, I am sure about it. I, I you know, there, it, it's not always the uh, the way with yeah. a lot of people, oh, but yeah. it doesn't have to be. People have the perception that everybody in politics is crooked. No, now. that's not true. There's some good people, men and women, who are serving in elected well, that, that office. Was, I know a point. lot of them. That, yeah, that's the point that I felt like I sure. could do that, and I, sure. could, I could maintain my integrity and um, and serve, and and wanted to have an opportunity to do it, and I very much enjoyed the opportunity to to do what I've done. So let's talk about running for lieutenant governor. Mitch is leaving. He's going to run for mayor. Uh, the general administration at the time is talking about absorbing lieutenant governor, making it a staff position uh, of, of the governor's office. I could remember a conversation, believe it or not, with Timmy Teeple about that. This is going to be crazy. But I ended up uh, Channel 9 brought in a new reporter. His name was David Spunt. And Spunt has since David, gone yeah. on someplace else. And so Spunt wanted to meet some of the political people around town. And somebody in the shop over at Channel 9 said, you got to call Clay Young. So he, so he calls me and I introduce him to some people and then I take him to the Capitol. And well, we end up on the fourth floor sitting in Melissa Sellers office at the time. She was the press secretary for the governor. In comes Timmy T. Timmy Teeple swaggering in in his jeans and cowboy boots. And he sits down and he starts to pitch the idea for you know, the lieutenant governor being a part of his administration or their administration. And I didn't think it was a good idea. And and I'll tell you why. I think the people should have the right to vote on as many offices as possible. That's what it was. They've been voting for it. Why not let them vote for it? Okay. 
And, and we must have gone 15 minutes back and forth, but he couldn't change my mind. And if you know Timmy, he didn't love that too much. But, hell, I didn't care. I was taking spunt around. So now you're running. You're going to run. I want to know what you thought about them wanting to absorb that office into, uh, into the governor's level. Well, obviously, I was against it. I right. was one of only two people that went to the table and <laughs> right. testified against it. Right. And the other person was Marion Fox, yeah. who was the head of the CVB uh, in Jennings, yeah. in, in Jeff Davis Parish. And uh, Marion was the only person in tourism that, that had the guts to go to the table and stand up and say, this is not a good idea. Why do you think explain, they wanted to do explain that? Explain why. I, I don't know. Probably a power? variety of reasons. Concentration of power yeah. was certainly one thing. Maybe there was some genuine belief that uh, it would be better served. Um, by by being uh, eliminated, but I think it was just more kind of on the on the Bobby checklist to sh- shrink government by yeah. eliminating a position and ostensibly saving money. We were able to point out that you're not really going to save any money and that it was not a good idea. And that that and, and I've come to see this, yeah. particularly with people outside of Louisiana, having a, a the position of lieutenant governor when you're traveling carry some cachet sure, with it and, sure. and some significance, particularly in dealing with uh, with foreign leaders and people in outside of America. Uh, and, and that's been very much a positive in the limited traveling I've done to promote Louisiana. And that's mm-hmm. what my traveling has been, to bring people to our state, visitors to our state, investors to our state, not in search of electoral votes. Sure. And, and the reaction has been uh, they, they're impressed that a, a high-ranking government official is, is talking to them. So I've, I've always felt like it's a viable position for government. Well, I've known you for a while. I knew of you, obviously, on the council, but I, we met when you were in the Senate and have known you since. I've not seen you have as much fun as you are having in this job. Why? Well, it's a great job, and if you're interested in promoting Louisiana and talking about the things that make our state great, it's yeah. tailor-made, and I love the job. I, I, you know, I've, I've said I could be very happy doing, continuing to do this job, but I, I feel like this is the time for me to sure. enter the governor's race and, and give up what is a, a, a job that I truly enjoy and, and that we've had a, a great deal of success in, in promoting the state and bringing people to Louisiana. Well, it's obvious that as a city council, you're sitting on the council and people, because our council is probably more in the news councils, the last three of them than maybe at any other time. Secretary of State, you're the elections chief. What does the lieutenant governor do? What's your day-to-day job? Well, run the Department of Culture, Recreation, and Tourism, basically a cabinet-level position. You have the secretary of DEQ, the secretary Mm -hmm. of DOTD, the secretary of economic development, all these positions that are controlled by the governor, the Department of Culture, Recreation, Tourism, by statute, is under the purview of the lieutenant governor. And um, as you know, I didn't hire somebody to run the department. We Mm -hmm. don't have a secretary of the Mm -hmm. Department of Culture, Recreation, and Tourism for the first time since the department existed. I'm doing the job. That's what I feel like the people elected me to do. So I'm handling the administrative responsibilities of the department, along with some able assistants, as well as being lieutenant governor, which brings with it the the unofficial or perhaps official title of being Louisiana's ambassador outside of the state. So I I run the department, which includes museums, Mm -hmm. parks, the state library, the arts life of Louisiana, the seafood promotion and marketing board, Mm -hmm. volunteer Louisiana and tourism. And tourism is the big umbrella that that, uh, uh, covers all these things that help make Louisiana such an attractive state to visitors. When you meet with people outside of our state, you know, I was talking to a client who is based in D.C., but was here a few weeks ago. And over dinner, we were talking about how political it is. And she was saying, well, you know, I live in Washington. I said, let me tell you something next to Washington, D.C. And some and, and in some cases, maybe more so. No place is more political than Louisiana. It took her all of the next day to send out an email saying this place is so political. So it's funny when you go to other places and they ask about Louisiana, what's the question you get the most? Well, let me tell you first, before I answer that question, you made that observation back when Huey Long was in the United States Senate, United (laughs) States Senate, one of his fellow senators from Texas named Connolly made a a very profound statement. He said, if you think you need, if you think you know something about politics, you need to go down to Louisiana and take a postgraduate course. (laughs) And that was probably an accurate assessment. Um, and now we've got Facebook and Twitter to go along with well, all of that. That's right. <laughs> For um, good or bad. <laughs> you know, I don't know that I could give you a most frequently asked question. I think I think the, the comment is always, 
wow, it's a fun place, or New Orleans is yeah. a fun place, or I love New Orleans. They want yeah. to talk about the food. They want yeah. to talk about the music. They right. want to talk about the joie de vie, sure. Mardi Gras. Uh, politically, in more recent times, obviously questions have been about about Jindal. I mean, people have seen Jindal yeah. in the national spotlight that he was under virtually from the day he took office, and so there, there have always been some inquiries about well, hell, he's searching for it now. In the beginning, there was a novelty effect with people in the media, you know, Indian elected right. uh, governor in Louisiana, this this whiz kid who had, you know, gone through Brown University. Mike Foster gave him a position of heft at DHH when he was 23, I believe. And then he leaves there. So he was the boy wonder. And and since then, it has gone all downhill. And I, I do plan on getting to that, but I'm taking my time, Lieutenant Governor Darden. So... Uh, the positives. When you're selling Louisiana, I know you have an elevator pitch, and I've heard about it from people. When you're talking to people about Louisiana, what's your go-to line? What's your go-to story or, or anecdote about why Louisiana is great? Well, I've got I've, actually I got several of them. I mean, All right. one of the more recent ones is uh, from National Geographic Traveler magazine. Okay, that had a story. Uh, a cover Did story. they send a camera crew to the legislature to see no, the no, wildebeest no, at work? No, no, no. Okay, they're, right. they're talking about Louisiana okay. itself, not its political uh, okay. flavor. But it's the story is the weirdest country in America. When you go to the story, <laughs> it's a six-page or so spread about Louisiana. And the headline of the story says... Uh, Homegrown, unique, and thoroughly wonderful, Louisiana has a character all its own. Wow. So that's one of the new entree lines I've used to talk about Louisiana. I agree with that. It does. It absolutely does. And, um, you know, we're, we're unlike any other state in America. And, and this is a great place to live. I mean, I know yes, that people sometimes are down on our state. We've got great food. We actually have air you can breathe <laughs> that you don't have to chew to swallow. Um, the food's great. But I want to ask about another aspect of this. I've, I have often believed that it benefits us going forward to not just be known as the party state. I do think that we need some business and economical gravitas. Do you think we are building that? And if not, how do we do that? Well, I absolutely think we're building that. And I think the proof is in the pudding with a, a number of the projects that are on the books to come to Louisiana. Yeah. Um, and and I'm very careful not to just paint us as a party place. Sure. Uh, you know, one of the other questions in, in response to your earlier question, there was fascination with swamp people, mm. fascination with Duck Dynasty. But I love swamp people. Every, everywhere yeah. I, I went over the past several years, people were curious about yeah. that. And, and I'm often asked, is it good for Louisiana? Is it bad for Louisiana to have that stereotype out there that we've got Troy Landry and Swamp <laughs> People, we've got the Duck Dynasty guys? Yeah. And, and I, my answer is always the same, and that is Louisiana is an authentic place. That's and that's right. what people are looking for in their travel decisions is authenticity. And Troy Landry is an authentic person. Yes, he is. The, the Dynasty clan are yeah. not made up. They're real nope. people. They're, they're genuine. A lot of people don't agree with their political philosophy sure, or what yeah. they do, but but they they're real and and let's let's be honest for people who don't know maybe you know this about the duck commander folks Troy Landry is not shaking a tin cup out of alligator season to keep his lights on. He's doing okay. Let's take our word for that. Well, he's a very, very good, shrewd businessman. <laughs> yes, he been is. in the crawfish business. That's and, right. Uh, convenience store business with his family. Oh, and, yeah. And he's, he was very successful yep. uh, long before he became That's a, a right. national figure. But but now he's, he's even more successful. But he's a good guy. Yes, Interviewed him once uh, working at J-Bo and just uh, he was personable. And I'm friends with Rose Hudson, who runs the Louisiana Lottery. And Rose has all these great stories about Troy. And I I think that's one of the best things about Louisiana, the people. Yep. We've got great people here. We do, and and that's why we're the happiest state in America. That's why people who live here love yeah. to be here. I'll tell you a, a story on Troy and, and the whole crew that, that proves your point. Mm -hmm. At the outset of the third season of Swamp People, the History Channel built a swamp in Chelsea Market in New York City, a very upscale <laughs> marketplace. Uh, fabricated by the, some Disney folks in Florida. They shipped it up there, built the, the base of it, six yeah. inches of water, plant life, frogs, turtles, six alligators. John Fulce came up there and cooked Louisiana food for 10 days to serve to people. It was free admission. And I can't tell you, well, I can tell you, we, we collected 11,000 email addresses from people who came wow. through that mall or went online to win a five-day trip to the Atchafalaya Basin. Wow. And to see little kids from public schools in New York who had seen nothing but concrete in their life right. to come in there and to walk out on the pier that had been constructed and to hold an alligator. 
and to see their eyes light up and have them learn about Louisiana, right. listen to Louisiana music, taste some Louisiana food, it was a tremendous marketing opportunity for us, and we took full advantage of it. Well, you've done a really good job marketing Louisiana, and I, I know you hear it all the time. Let's talk about the governor's race here. Uh, before we get into you running, I do want an honest critique from you about Governor Jindal. And I don't think you will be too surprised when you hear, or I don't think you are very surprised anymore when you hear all the criticism he's getting from a great number of places. While there have been some good things, you know, companies who are choosing to do business with Louisiana, who are talking to Moray over at uh, the Department of Economic Development, the political commentator aspect of what he has done has ticked a great number of people off because the list of good things isn't as long as it probably ought to be. What do you think about it? Well, I think clearly his his focus has been on his national political career at, yeah. at, a, at the cost of Louisiana. I yep. mean, it's been pretty clear that that's what's happened in the past few years, and, and he, a lot of the decisions, I think, are made on the basis of how they're going to play to a national Republican office, not mm-hmm. to Louisianians. And that's been very disappointing. And the time that he spent out of state um, to politic for his own future has been very, very disappointing. I think some good things have come out of the last eight years. There's sure. been some progress, in my view, educationally on some of the things that have taken place. I think economic development, for the most part, has been a, a bright spot with mm-hmm. uh, businesses coming here and a climate more attractive to people outside of Louisiana. And I think that's been a very good thing. But well, I, what about education? Common Core is a great example. For whatever people think of Common Core, and I, I generally don't like to be in the business of telling people that you should or shouldn't like something. I only know what I like or don't like. But the truth is the governor was a part of the committee that created Common Core, and he was very invested in the promotion of Common Core. And actually, it is being implemented in many places. I don't think people recognize that here in EBR, kids are using Common Core standards. Park is not fully implemented, but Common Core is. He flipped on them. And all of a sudden, and I personally believe it's because of political expediency on a national level, he flipped and is now all of a sudden against it. Those are the kinds of things that drive people crazy. Yeah, that's right. And and that's exactly what happened. I do think it's for political reasons. Same thing with David Vitter and his flip. Yep. All of a sudden he studied the issue and he's he's absolutely for it. It's the greatest thing. And then the next thing you know, well, he's he's changed his mind and he's now against it. And, and uh, it's not uh, – clearly there's some opposition to it out sure. there across the country and, sure. and to some extent Louisiana as well. But, look, we've invested a lot of money on this. No it's question. Been, it, the the rollout was not good. The nope. implementation was not good. Nope. Teachers should have been more involved in that. And and there should have been much clearer guidelines. Yes. And it, there's been a lot of missteps. But it's a set of standards. It's not a curriculum. The curriculum's left to locals. It's a set of standards that's going to allow us to measure Louisiana students against others across America. And we can't be happy with our lot in life educationally in Louisiana right now in terms mm-hmm. of where we've been. So it's a change. It's different. Um, but it, we've got to stay the course. It's unfair to teachers. It's unfair to students. And it's overly expensive to suddenly say we're going to we're going to ditch Common Core. Sure. And what are we going to do? Nobody wants to talk about, OK, what, what are, are we going to do in the, yeah. in the meantime? So how do you fix that? How do you address that? You're governor in January, mid-January. You take the oath of office. What, what do you do? Well, there are going to be a couple of things that are going to address it anyway. There's going to the, – the RFP is going to be issued mm-hmm. sometime this year for the park test and sure. whether or not someone else is able to, to get it. Um, I, I think the, I think Bessie and the, the uh, superintendent are very aware of the issues that are out there. Superintendents certainly are, and the challenges they're having with this current notion we're talking about, about uh, opting out of, of the testing – uh, so there are going to be some changes that are going to take place between now and January. I think the point is we're going to have to stay the course with this set of standards, make sure the curriculum is addressed, mm-hmm. it, it, curriculum is addressed at, at each of the um, various levels. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, and we'll see, it's going to be very interesting to see what the results of the tests are and how they come out because, you know, it's it's different. But Teachers have been teaching toward this new test sure. for the past several years. Right. And there are an awful lot of teachers in this state and school districts that, that recognize this is the right thing to do for Louisiana. Do we overtest children in public schools? 
I've been I've read that in a number of places in different com, uh, columns. People are saying that we overtest children. Do you believe that? Well, I know we I know we teach to the test. Yeah. You know, and that and that's a, a criticism that may be a valid one that we need to rethink. When teachers are just simply preparing students solely for what they're going to learn on a test, mm-hmm. one of the positive aspects about the standards of Common Core and the testing that goes with it is that it's designed to help students think more critically as sure. what they're going to have to do in terms of uh, competing with people outside of Louisiana and, and how problems are solved in the future. Um, I, I don't know that we per se over test, but I think the, the issue of teaching to a particular test is something we ought to be a little concerned about. Budgetarily, you know, if you're elected, you take office in January, you're going to have a mess to clean up. I mean, and it's getting worse all the time. There could be institutions of higher education closing. We've seen uh, here in Baton Rouge uh, uh, that uh, Baton Rouge General at Mid-City is losing the ER. It's a big problem. What do you think about the budget and the the way the governor's handled it? Well, it's a mess right now. I mean, there's there's over-dependence upon one-time money. Uh, There has not been, in my view, the selective type of cuts that need to be looked at as opposed to across-the-board cuts. And I've said this for quite some time, that the easy way to cut is to simply cut everybody equally, and you therefore uh, penalize the good and reward the bad if everybody is is cut equally. And one of the things I've been talking about is that we need to have a much more uh, detailed look programmatically at the budgets of, of state agencies to yeah. see what is being done and, and what ought not be done. Uh, and that's one approach I think we're going to have to take. The answer to the question will depend, obviously, in large part, what happens this year in the legislature. I don't believe this legislature is going to sit by and, and see institutions of higher education closing, but I don't think the institutions are crying wolf. These, no. are, these are very yeah. serious no question. problems that, that uh, universities are facing, and it takes an awful long time to recover. We funded higher education fully in accordance with the formula mm-hmm. uh, during the Foster administration. One, one of the years, I believe, I was chairman of the Finance Committee. And we've been retreating from that in yeah. the past several years, and it takes an awful lot of time for institutions of higher education to rebound from sure. the kind of cuts that are facing. But it, it's also forced universities to sharpen their pencils and mm-hmm. university management boards to look more carefully at the things that, that I want to see us look at as we go down the road, and that is, and this has been addressed to some extent, avoiding duplication of services, creating centers of excellence yeah. in various universities where if you want to follow a certain profession, you need to go to this school. Uh, and Why don't we point more kids toward technical and vocational colleges? Well, we are. We are now. We absolutely are. Do you are. think we're doing it enough? Well, no, but okay. we, we're in the process of yeah. doing it enough. Uh, you know, in, to some extent, um, there was a stigma attached to not going to get sure. a four-year college oh, yeah. degree sure. if you were a, a, a successful high school student. Sure. But the jobs that are now being offered to, to people in Louisiana who don't need a four-year mm-hmm. degree but who need two years of training or certification, sure. those jobs are, are crying out to be filled by Louisianians. And the, the workforce commission that is at work and the, um, the, the various programs that have been set up where finally institutions of education are talking to one another – the business community is mm-hmm. sitting at the table as well. There's a legitimate job forecast of what jobs are going to be in the area, in various areas. And we are making certain that training is available to suit young people yeah. or, or people reentering the workforce right. to fill those jobs. So, yeah, we're getting there and it's happening. And I'm in very encouraged by that. It's interesting raising taxes. The governor, of course, said he wouldn't raise taxes. Now, I obviously lean conservative on or go very far on financial matters, but I don't think that every tax is terrible. My personal philosophy about a tax is this. I look at it like like a family, a couple, a husband and wife in a house, and there's something you need and you don't have enough money to pay for it and you don't have any place to cut to make an allowance for it. So someone gets a part time job. And that's how I look at taxes. I don't think they should be in perpetuity. I, I think they should be on a limited basis. Now, that those are rare circumstances when they come along, but I'm only being honest about what I feel. In Baton Rouge, we kept the pothole tax because we're building roads, and it's, it's something that we can see and touch. Going in as, as governor, are you going to raise taxes? No, I don't want to go in and raise taxes, and I think people want to want to have a voice in what taxes they may pay. That's why I think any yeah. opportunity that gives people a chance to vote on taxes or dedicating money for something is, is sure. pretty well received yeah. by by the electorate. Um, I don't I don't view 
the abolition of an exclusion or an exemption or the modification of a credit of an exclusion exemption is raising taxes, mm-hmm. unlike the governor. Sure. I, I think if something's not working the way it was originally intended to do, if it's outlived its usefulness, then it's not right to exempt someone from a tax that everybody else is otherwise paying. So right. I don't agree with that that philosophy that is born out of the pledge that he he signed and the the uh, pressure that I think he feels from the from Grover Norquist's group yeah. uh, to to stay that course. You I, can paint yourself into a corner a little bit with that, and I'm not I'm not advocating raising taxes because I don't like it. I have I have enough that I'm paying as it is. But my point is, in reasonable discussion. You should leave most everything on the table for reasonable people. I never signed. Is that unfair? No, it's not. Okay. I never signed that pledge. Right. I mean, it was it was mailed to me every year I was in the legislature, and I, sure. I never signed it. It didn't get the scrutiny it gets now. It was just another one of the kind of questionnaires that came in, but I yeah. consciously never signed it because I just didn't think it, it was, as you say, it was the, not only I didn't think it was the right thing to do, but under the category of you never know what may happen, and I didn't want to be... Uh, uh, bonded by sure. that pledge sure um george hw bush read my lips no new taxes that came back to get him boy did it let's talk about the other side of the coin though because i see both sides of this in in that one of the reasons that i'm not a fan of taxes is because they are often targeted in you know who who you're gonna and the, the same people are the ones who are paying the freight right and so there is frustration over that how do you address that because louisiana is a state with not a whole lot of money going and we've got constitutionally some things you are are there that you can't touch how do you address that well you know we by a couple of independent national studies we have either the third or fourth lowest uh tax burden Mm -hmm. on citizens in america sure Uh, but a high poverty rate a a very high poverty rate and and a, a lot of uh misunderstanding about the nature of, of our tax structure because mm-hmm. you don't you don't you do certain things or you don't do certain things and so there's a perception that gosh we're not a good place to do business from a taxing standpoint but it's not because our taxes are overly high but we've got all these this myriad of exclusions and mm-hmm. credits and exemptions and uh, this and that and people don't pay property taxes and sure. only business pays property taxes so it's a it's certainly not a tax system that you would draw up if you were starting from scratch but sure. it's the one that's evolved in Louisiana, we have a a homestead exemption that, right. that prevents basically an awful lot of people from paying any property tax, mm-hmm. and we have no state property tax, although one is allowed to be imposed constitutionally. Local governments have become dependent upon the state oh, yeah. for a lot of finances, and and their funding also is limited by the homestead exemption, mm-hmm. though property taxes are, are generated locally for local government, and that's one of the main. Um, main uh, branches upon which they rely. Sure. Um, so, you know, that we certainly don't have a perfect tax system. In my view, it needs to be flatter and simpler, mm-hmm. and that would be the way I would go about approaching a, 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 any revision overall to how we impose taxes in Louisiana. How do you feel about a constitutional convention? Now, we've already kind of talked about this off the air, but let's have it here. You know, what I do you think about, about it that? today in a, yeah. in a talk, and I was asked about it. I've never felt like the, the answer is a constitutional convention. I'm, I'm just not sure that, that that is the best way to go. There's going to be a huge issue legislatively about who gets to be the delegates. Sure. Uh, it was a big issue back in 73 when it was determined, uh, but it was a, a pretty good base of people. But, you know, every, every special interest group, and there are a lot more of them now than there sure. were in the 70s, is going to want a seat at the table and a vote at a constitutional convention. Legislators are going to want to be the delegates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to want somebody to run from their legislative district because they could very well be a challenger in the next election. <laughs> right. Um, and, and so how do you pick who gets to be in the convention is one of the biggest challenges and biggest problems. And if you open everything up, you're liable to take out some good things that are in our Constitution right now, some yeah. good protections that are there. But And, of course, it can all be addressed either by the legislature not continuing, continuing to put constitutional amendments in front of us mm-hmm. or by the legislature passing proposed constitutional amendments that undo some of the things that people think we ought to be rethinking. So I'm, I'm not yet prepared to say, yep, I'm going to go in and have a constitutional convention right off the bat, but I, I'm, I wouldn't rule that out. But as I sit right mm-hmm. now, I, d- I don't think that's the answer. We are the reddest state in America. Four and a half million people, but without a doubt, we are the reddest state. Not a single statewide elected Democrat in a state that has more registered Democrats voting than registered Republicans. At, at, at Three years ago, it was almost a two-to-one ratio. And it's, it's, of course, gotten closer since then, as you well know, being a former Secretary of State. 
What do you think has contributed so much to Louisiana being such a red state? Equally importantly is the number of people who are registering no party yeah. or unaffiliated or, yeah. uh, you know, whatever, independent, whatever you want sure. to call it. It's, sure. it's, uh, technically, it's no party. Right. You don't belong to a party. Mm-hmm. That's the fastest growing registration. It is. People are leaving both parties. But what you're finding is that the people who are leaving the parties or who are registering no party are leaning conservative, mm-hmm. leaning toward the Republican side. And the state is, I agree with you, we're the reddest state in America, right. arguably. We're certainly in the top three to five. Well, who's more red? In under any circumstance. We're redder than Mississippi. We're as red as as you can get. (laughs) And and, and, I mean, and I think that's that's evidenced by virtue of the recent elections we're seeing. And and I think it's going to play out in the elections later this year. No question. No question. So how do you think we got here? I think we were generally conservative by nature anyway. You had an awful lot of people who were registered Democrats and still are. Oh, yeah. who, Who uh, voted for Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. who, who may have voted back in the 60s for Richard Nixon, but to vote in Louisiana, you really needed to be a Democrat. Sure. And there, you know, there are any number of people in Same Louisiana, was true in Texas. Particularly in the high-age high demographic yeah. group that just never bothered to change. Right. They weren't interested enough as to what party they were affiliated with, but they knew how they were going to vote. Sure. So I think we voted generally conservatively. We just now have moved more toward registered Republicans and no-party people being overtly Republican. What do you think of David Vitter? I think David oh, Vitter look needs at that to, expression. David Vitter needs to, to stay in the United in the, States Senate. Well, that's a self-serving answer. That's for re-election in 2016 and see what the people think. That's, that's a little bit of a self-serving answer, but part, you know, you've known the guy for a while. Y'all worked together in the legislature. So we talked about this before. You know, we'll wrap up in the next five minutes or so. But four years ago. When Senator Vitter was facing reelection, there were people who were trying to get you to run against him. And I know you were listening, but you hadn't made up your mind that you were going to do that. And I know you heard from a lot of people. Listen, we like you. He votes the right way. He's already there. You know, don't mess up the apple cart. We don't need that right now. You would you agree that that happened? That did happen. Okay, so that's not what shaped my decision. Oh no 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 I, no! But I really wasn't sure. I, I mean, I was listening to people who were encouraging me to run, but I I never did anything to to advance uh, being a candidate. Well, never formed an exploratory committee or whatever. But I but yeah, personally that's right. I personally know that to be true. Yeah. That what you just said. So now four years later, actually three and a half years later, you are making it known that yes you are going to run for governor, which, by the way, is the way I think people ought to do it. Don't pretend you're interested in some, not interested in something that we can clearly see that you are right. interested in. So that the, so the senator had to know that this you were going to do this. Did you and he have any conversation, say, over a year ago where he said, I'm getting in the race, too? Or did you just see it when it was becoming public? No, we had no conversations. I just okay. saw it when when he announced he was running, which was after. I'm sure he knew I was running. I yeah. was already out there telling people I right. was going to run. Right. But, um, you know, I'm looking forward to the race. I, I think I have the ability to bring people together and, and serve in, in an executive position, proving I can do more with mm-hmm. less and getting results with, with less money. And, Why would you be a better governor than he would be? Stark differences between us from a okay. personality standpoint, from a management standpoint, uh, and from the way we deal with people mm-hmm. and, and the way I work together with people to make good things happen. Uh, as opposed to uh, David's role in the United States Senate, which has shown that he doesn't work very well with people, and he's done a good job of saying no to things, and he's done a good job of being the uh, anti-Obama during this time in the Senate, which is why I think he got reelected the first time. It was at a time where he was voting in a way that Louisiana liked, and he still is, and he was going to go up there and fight Obama, who was not popular in this state. Uh, But electing a governor is a lot different than sending someone to Washington to fight Um, the the philosophical type partisan battles that take place in Washington D.C. I don't want that coming to Louisiana. Right. I don't want those kind of politics that, that David has been involved in uh, becoming the accepted uh, style of politics in Louisiana. We're at a point in time where we need to be brought together, not divided. So what about that the cross section of the, of the electorate? The uh, white voters, black voters, male, female, females outperformed males last election cycle almost in every race. It was something to see, you know, going after all of these different subsections of voters. What's your game plan? Well, I'm not going to tell you my entire <laughs> game plan. I'm, I'm, asking, well, maybe if asking, I do a, a 
premium paid podcast, I'll get him to tell us. But no, go ahead. So, well, how do you approach it? How do you approach it? Well, I approach it like I've approached all my races for people to look at me and, and judge me on my job performance and what I've done and the kind of person I am, the level of integrity that I've tried to maintain during sure. my time in public service and compare that to David Vitter sure. and compare that to the other candidates in the race. And and I'll I'll be me like I've always tried to be throughout my time in public service. And I think one of the best compliments somebody in public life can get is for people to say, you're the same guy now as you were yeah. when you began this process. And I hope that people can say that about me. So I want you to finish some sentences for me and then we'll get out of here. I'll give you a few of them and then you finish them. Louisiana is a poetic place with a prosaic population. That's a, a modification of what a great Louisiana writer, Harnett Cain, wrote many, many years ago. It, it, I think it captures who we are with this, this uh, great ethnic blend that makes Louisiana special that has all come together to, to make Louisiana a fascinating and wonderful place to be. In some cases, Louisiana still has divisions because... Well, because of politics, in large part, just the, the sheer nature of the way politics is, the fact that uh, we've not fully come together as, uh, geographically from North and South Louisiana. There are divides there, which is why I've spent an awful lot of time in North Louisiana during my time as Secretary of State and Lieutenant Governor to try and uh, broach those divisions that people feel uh, geographically. Bobby Jindal is, oh, can't wait for this one. I wish this was on television. Your expression is priceless, but go Not ahead. the governor of this state today. He's out of town, and I am the acting governor. <laughs> this is true. This is right, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. Senator David Vitter is? Uh, Going to be in the Senate next year as well. Next to my family and the people I've worked with, my greatest blessing over the last 20 years has been? Well, that's an easy one, to, to serve the people of Louisiana in an elected position. So now, what do you think is going to be your biggest challenge? We've talked about a great number of things. We've not, we've not put biggest on anything. If you're elected, what's going to be the thing that you will spend those first couple of nights up working on? I think invariably it's going to be the budget situation facing the state. I think that uh, I, I doubt that this legislature, this this term, mm -hmm. with little or no leadership from the governor's office, is going to fix all the problems that we've got. So I think it's inevitable that the next governor is going to face, a, as you've pointed out, a, a myriad of problems, sure. mostly centered around the budget. So I think that's going to be the, the overriding issue coming into office and, and trying to uh, dig out from under some of the, the mess that now exists. If people want to learn more about your job currently as lieutenant governor or your campaign, how can they do that? Uh, we have a great website, louisianatravel.com, for the lieutenant governor's office. It'll tell you everything you want to know about our department and about great things to do in Louisiana with a lot of great links to trails that have been created and things that you can do to, to be a tourist in your own state. Um, and our website is www.jdarden.com. Well, you've been guest number one on my podcast. I haven't done an interview in two and a half years. You did well. <laughs> well, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate the opportunity to be numero uno. And, That's exactly And out right. of many others. And I congratulate you on this venture, and I know you'll do well with it. There is a story that we're going to talk about, but we'll wait until January to tell that story about something I said to Jay. 12 years ago. All right. Stay tuned to podcast225.com. Next week, a brand new show as we talk with the current Cats CEO, Bob Mirabito. See ya. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another edition of The Clay Young Show.